Brother Steve, care one for another. Thank you. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, that this has been a wonderful week for my family. And I really want to extend our heartfelt thanks for your friendship, for your fellowship. It has been a, uh, a time where, as a family, we were able to gather together and attend a Bible school, all of us. On Monday, our oldest son goes off to college, and it will be just five again. So this has been a special time. Lessons from an imperfect ecclesia. My motivation behind developing these classes was really to help us understand that the problems and the difficulties that we sometimes experience in life, whether it be in our families, within our home ecclesias, within our community at large, are not unique to our day and time. Problems have been around since the very beginning of ecclesial life. And it's also evident in an examination of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. And in this week, we've been looking at that first letter. And we've seen the real moral and doctrinal problems that were experienced by the Christadelphian Ecclesia at Corinth, our brothers and sisters there. And the fact that there are problems either in our meetings or at that meeting so many years ago, shouldn't surprise us. And instead, what we should do is, is we should look to the counsel of the Apostle Paul to see how it is that we can work through such problems. And I hope that you found the time that we spent doing so helpful. I know it's been helpful for me. Yesterday, we spent time really getting into, you know, deeper into this letter. And we focused on the fact that Chloe's household came to Paul while he was in Ephesus to report that there were divisions in the meeting. And it seems as though there were some brothers and sisters that were desirous of affiliating with some brothers and sisters or particularly some individual teachers and not others. We saw, for example, that the ecclesia was boasting in their associations. There were some who boasted in the fact that they were following Apollos, who was this learned man, who was this terrific orator, who had such eloquent speech. And they aligned themselves with him. And others felt that they could boast in their association with Cephas because he was one of the original apostles. He was a friend of the Lord. He was one who lived with him day in and day out and was, was counseled and taught by Jesus himself. And so they felt a certain amount of pride in associating with him. And of course, others pointed to Paul and felt that their allegiance lay with him because it was he that introduced the gospel to this city and taught them the truth. And throughout all of this, the Apostle Paul exhorts the brothers and sisters not to be divided, 
but to unite, to mend the fabric of fellowship so that through their continued association together as one, they could exhort and encourage one another. And so much the more as we await that day when the Lord returns. And so this was the counsel of Paul, that they work together to develop a unity of mind and thought. And it was only by being together could they have the opportunity to teach and to correct and to rebuke and to encourage. Paul pointed out that it was wrong to be boastful in their associations. Turn with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says in the ninth verse, for we are all God's fellow workers. He says, despite your desire to associate with individuals, remember that we are all God's fellow workers. And we remember that, don't we, brothers and sisters? We work together in the service of our Lord. In chapter 5 yesterday, we talked about that chapter where Paul counseled the brothers and sisters to take action against one who claimed to be a brother in Christ, and yet through his actions was teaching the congregation that it was okay to live an unchristlike life. There was a brother who was committing sexual acts of immorality that were so severe that he said not even the pagans do such things. And Paul recognized that it was important to correct this before this type of teaching and this type of behavior infiltrated the ecclesia. And consequently, his advice to the ecclesia was that they did demonstrate their collective judgment that this brother was in danger of the judgment seat. And he was turned over to Satan. And we spoke about how within our ecclesias we need to develop an atmosphere where our brothers and sisters can feel welcome to share their doubts so that they can be encouraged to understand more perfectly. And we need to encourage our brothers and sisters to come to us with their moral problems so that we can encourage each other to live more Christ-like lives. But what this particular immoral brother was doing is he was claiming to be a brother in Christ. And he was teaching through his actions that it was okay for the other brothers and sisters to live unchristlike lives. And so they collectively put this man out of their meeting. But the good news is that the man was restored. And when we went to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we saw that Paul then encouraged the ecclesia to bring him back in and to build him up. And that is the purpose of withdrawal. And so then we focused on those verses within the Scriptures that talk about withdrawal. And we identified the fact that all of the verses that, re, that, that deal with withdrawal are specific to individuals who either teach false doctrine 
who lead division or who blaspheme. And they're never applied to groups of individuals who have a failure of understanding. But they're always applied to that individual. And the big picture is the goal of this is to teach and to correct so that together we might be found watching and waiting for the Lord's return. We then moved on to Acts to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we had a discussion about the weaker brother. And on the slide in front of us are two verses that are pulled from this chapter. Verse 9 and verse 13. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And I'd encourage you again to focus on that word stumbling block. And then in verse 13, Paul writes, If, I, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that it will not cause him to fall into sin. Or as the King James says, to offend. And so we spent a, deal, a great deal of time yesterday talking about what this means to offend a brother or sister. And we identified the fact that it is not relating to being upset or being angry or having hurt feelings or resentment or displeasure over these things that a brother or sister might do. But instead, it has everything to do with whether our actions might cause a brother to stumble, might become a stumbling block causing him to fall into sin. So when we see this in the context of the letter to the Corinthians, we can imagine the individual, the brother for whom Christ died, who has been pulled from that city full of immorality, the brother who formally attended the idol temples where there were these Corinthian chores, these Corinthian girls that would come down with their tinkling cymbals and their gonging gongs, advertising the fact that there were temple prostitutes available to pleasure him. And as a result, when we think of the context of this chapter, what Paul was saying is he would never eat meat if it caused his brother to stumble and fall back into a life of sin. If this brother who was formerly a participant in those sorts of activities saw me eating in one of those temples, it might cause him to come back. Now here's an interesting fact. Archaeologists today have discovered that there were restaurants associated with many of these temples. They were, in essence, communal cafeterias where people could come and share a meal together. And it makes practical sense because there were many animals that were sacrificed to these idolatrous gods. And the leftovers, the, the, the meat that was left over from those idolatrous sacrifices were then shared with the community 
in these cafeteria-style restaurants. And so when Paul says, I will never eat meat if it caused my brother to offend, what he's speaking about is the fact that if he is in one of those communal restaurants at a feast in Corinth where the community would gather, might it cause this weak brother to look over and see a prostitute, a Corinthian core, who he had affiliations with? Might it cause this young, weaker brother to be tempted to go back into that lifestyle of sin? And so when we think about causing our brother to offend, it's speaking specifically about causing our brother to stumble and fall away from a life in Christ and back into a life in the world. Yesterday we spoke about our conscience and how our conscience needs to be based on the revealed will of God. It must not be based on philosophical reasoning or worldly wisdom or practical and pragmatic teachings of, based on tradition. But instead, it must be based on what God says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul counsels the brothers and sisters to base their conscience on the revealed will of God. And we spoke yesterday about how as religious conscientious objectors, Christadelphians are not pacifists. Because in the Old Testament, it would have been wrong for us not to fight because God told the congregation to go into the land of Canaan and fight. And in the New Testament, we're told to love our enemies and to put away our sword. And so our conscience is based on the revealed will of God. When we think about how it is that we can interact with our brothers and sisters, we should at all times, brothers and sisters, try to find ways when, where we can esteem and love our brothers and sisters greater than ourselves. That we can understand what their needs are and defer to their needs rather than insist upon our freedoms. In Romans 14, Paul says these things lead to peace. But this counsel, this advice of Paul is only applicable to direct Bible teaching. Let me say that again. This issue is only applicable to areas where there is no direct Bible teaching. And so when we look at Romans 14, we see the apostle counseling on an issue such as holy days. Should we esteem one day greater than the next? And so it's very likely and advisable that we should defer to a brother who might feel that if we insist upon esteeming one day greater than, the, than another and it causes him to stumble back into a way of worldly sin, that that would be wrong. Similarly, he speaks about eating meat that's been offered to idols. Both of these things are examples where there's no direct biblical teaching one way or the other. And so we defer to the conscience of the brother if it's based on Bible truth. But, and here's an important caveat, it would be wrong for me 
to insist that you do something to satisfy my conscience if I'm asking you to break a direct command of Scripture. It would be wrong for me to comply with your request if you ask me to do something that contravenes Bible teaching. And so we spoke yesterday about Paul's letter to the Galatians and how the Judaizers followed Paul. And they tried to teach that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. His sacrifice wasn't enough. In addition to Jesus' sacrifice and your baptism into His name, they said, you must still perform acts of law. And Paul understood that this was a great threat to the Gospel message. And as a result, in Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says that he did not give in to these weaker brethren for a moment. Why? So that the gospel truth would remain in you. And there's a great example, I think, where Paul would not limit his freedom. Even when a brother asked him to. And the reason was because it would have contravened, would have been opposite, opposed to the teaching of Scripture. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we began our week, we saw that Paul preached Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews. He continued to preach it even though he knew it was a stumbling block because it was the right thing to do. Because it was the gospel truth. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to focus our attention on the Lord's Supper. We see in chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12, Paul focusing the attention of the brothers and sisters on that. And it makes sense that there should be so much attention placed upon the Lord's Supper. Because when we think about the highlight of our week as brothers and sisters in Christ, it's centered around that time when we remember Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ gave His life for us. And He asked that we do this in remembrance of Him. And so we gather each week to heed His command, to honor His wishes, and to remember Him. And so we're going to be focusing, I, I pray, on these three things. The significance of the one loaf. We're going to be talking about what it means to eat in an unworthy manner. And lastly, we'll speak about what Paul means when he says that we are to recognize the body of the Lord. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says these familiar words. He says, I speak to sensible people, Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Earlier this week, we listened to Brother Mick deliver an evening program about the body of Christ. And... He made a comment that really resonated with me. 
And he said, and you may remember, he said, we are blood relatives. And yet, when we look out and we look at each other, we must realize that none of us, few of us, share the same DNA. But we are blood relatives because what we share is the blood of Christ. We share the blood of Christ. We were baptized into his name, into the one body of Christ. And consequently, we come together as blood relatives. In this particular verse, Paul says, is not the cup of thanksgiving, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? It's the word fellowship. It's the word sharing. It's the word participation. And so together, as brothers and sisters, as the body of Christ, we share in the blood of our Lord. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ when He gathered His disciples around Him at that last supper. And after they were together, He said to them, after pouring the cup, He said, drink ye all of it. And so my question to you is, what did Jesus mean when He said, drink ye all of it? Was He saying, drink it to the last drop? No. He was saying, drink all of you of it. All of you, my brothers and sisters, drink of it. And so in that way, we share as blood relatives in the blood of Christ. You'll see on the slide here a translation from a modern version. And when I was preparing these classes, I saw this and it popped for me. This verse 16 became crystal clear in my mind. Paul writes, And though we are many, we all eat of the one loaf, showing we're one body. We all eat of the one loaf, showing we're one body. Think about what was going on in Corinth. They were dividing. They were following Cephas and Apollos and Paul. And he's saying, when you get together and you see that one loaf of bread, realize that that one loaf symbolizes the fact that we come together as one body. Though we're many, though we have some in our meeting that are Greeks and some that are Jews, though we have some that are slaves and some that are free, though, though that we have some that are of noble birth, and some that were born into obscurity. When Paul went into Corinth, he took these people from all different backgrounds and brought them together as one in Christ Jesus. And he says, though we're many, we all eat from one loaf. We're one body. 
Chapter 11 is a chapter that I remember my grandfather speaking to me about. And he said, you know, we often, Steve, we often read this chapter at the memorial service. He says, but we need to remember that the words here are a very strong rebuke from the Apostle Paul. And sometimes because of our familiarity with these words having been read to us many Sundays after Sundays, we lose sight of the fact that they're part of a very strong rebuke from the Apostle to the brothers and sisters there in Corinth. And so when we look at the 17th verse, we can sometimes be shocked. Speaking of the memorial service, Paul says, your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine? Here's the situation. The brothers and sisters in Corinth most likely did not have an ecclesial building where they could all congregate. But instead, they probably met in homes. And what was happening in Corinth is those that had the homes, the wealthy, if you will, would begin their memorial service in remembrance of Jesus. And in doing so, they would exclude the slaves and the servants who seemed to have had, I'm guessing, some occupation that would have precluded them from arriving earlier. And so those that were wealthy would begin the memorial service without waiting for the entire congregation to gather together. Verse 20. When you come together, is it not the Lord's supper you eat? For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. And so this was the problem that Paul was addressing. He was rebuking the brothers and sisters there for not sharing the communion together. The the memorial service, brothers and sisters, was designed by Christ to be a sharing between all those who had been baptized into His name. And in Corinth, they were preventing that sharing from taking place. Your meetings do more harm than good. In verse 33, Paul says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. And so here we see that the apostle was saying, wait for each other. Share the communion meal. Share in the blood of Christ. Together, as one, wait for each other. Now look at what it says in the 29th verse. Paul writes in the 29th verse and says, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. I'll tell you that for years, when I read this verse, I considered, I thought, that this verse was reminding me to consider the body of Christ at His crucifixion. To think of Jesus 
as he died and was raised. And clearly, that's an important part of a memorial service because it is done in memory of Jesus. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And so we think of Christ and we honor his life and his death and his resurrection when we get together. But I'm going to suggest to you that the verses that we read here in Corinthians aren't speaking about the individual body of our Lord, but are instead speaking of the collective body of believers. Because it fits the context of the chapter, doesn't it? Paul is saying to the brothers and sisters, those who are rich, those who are wealthy, those who are beginning the communion meal without waiting for others. He's saying to them, your meetings do more harm than good. He's saying anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so when we try to understand what the body of the Lord means in the context of Corinthians, I'll point you to two bookends on either side of this chapter 11. In chapter 10, the verse that we just read, chapter 10, verse 17, Paul identifies the body as those who have been baptized into the body. Verse 17, Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And so here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, the apostle identifies the community of believers, all the brothers and sisters, as the body of Christ. And on the other side of chapter 11, in chapter 12, forming the second part of these bookend verses, we find verse 13, where Paul writes, for we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. And so, brothers and sisters, we recognize as brethren and sisters in Christ those who have been validly baptized. We would not open the communion table to those who were sprinkled, having believed in things like heaven going. We wouldn't recognize their baptism as having been valid. They're not part of the true body of Christ. There are some who have been immersed as as, uh, Baptists are immersed. And yet, we do not believe that they would be part of the body of Christ because they believe something that was not taught by Jesus and the apostles. And so the body of Christ is comprised of all those who understand the things that were taught by Jesus and by the apostles and were baptized into His name. And so when Paul speaks about the body of Christ, he's speaking in chapter 12, verse 13, about those who were baptized by one Spirit into the one body. In verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you, each one of you is a part of it. We can take great joy in that fact. Look now at verse 28. Paul writes and says, 
A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. What does that mean? When I sit on a Sunday morning and I prepare my mind to share in the communion, when I prepare my mind to eat bread and drink from the cup in remembrance of Him, do I ever consider that I'm worthy of Christ's sacrifice? Are any of us worthy? I would suggest to you that we are not. So what does it mean then when Paul says a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup? Put yourself now, brothers and sisters, back at that home in Corinth where there is a host who has prepared a meal and says, eat, drink, do this in remembrance of Him. And you look around and you say, but, but wait. We're not all here yet. We haven't all arrived. And yet you then consider the fact that, well, this isn't my home. I haven't prepared this meal. I will defer the decision. It's not my responsibility. It's not my problem. I'll defer this to the owner of the house. It's his decision. And Paul's saying, that's not acceptable. He's saying, let each one of you examine yourself. It's sometimes easy, brothers and sisters, to look at controversy and conflict within our ecclesias and evaluate the situation by counting the costs by determining that the risk of me getting involved in this is more than I can stomach. That I'll just leave it to others to decide. It's not my problem. And I think Paul recognizes the temptation that we all have when we experience those sorts of controversies and difficulties. And because of that, the apostle says, let a man examine himself. In other words, he's telling us that it is our problem and that we each have an individual, that we each have a personal responsibility to wait for one another around the breaking of bread. Verse 28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, without recognizing the community of believers, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul says, I understand that it's difficult for you to stomach the the need to get involved in this service where some are excluded. I understand your desire to want to step back and say it's not my problem. And he counters that by saying it is your problem. Because if you eat and drink 
without recognizing the body of the Lord, you're eating and drinking damnation on yourself. We don't have the option to step back and say it's not my problem. And Paul identifies that clearly for us. And so he then moves on and he counsels the ecclesia toward love. When you think about how Paul interacted with the struggling membership, consistently throughout the letter, he demonstrated his heartfelt love for them. We know that when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was full aware of the doctrinal and the moral problems that were going on in that meeting. He was completely aware of these things. And he began his letter by assuring the brothers and sisters there of his love. He said, I always give thanks for you. And so we should take the counsel of Paul. We should follow his example. And we should give thanks for each and every one of our brethren. Not merely those who agree with us on matters, but all those who have been baptized into the body of Christ. We need together to work together as God's fellow workers. And Paul, more than anything, encourages us time and time and time again through his writings to the Corinthians. I always give thanks for you. And so, brothers and sisters, let us pray for our brothers and sisters. In chapter 8, the chapter where Paul speaks of deferring to the conscience of the weaker brother, there's an interesting comment there where he speaks about knowledge. He says, we know that an idol is nothing. But then he balances that knowledge with the fact that there are some who don't fully understand that concept who are still struggling with their previous way of life, having lived in an idolatrous Corinth. He says, we know that an idol is nothing. And he goes on in chapter 8, verse 1, and says, knowledge puffs up. It makes us proud. It causes us to not show love, but to feel boastful in what we know. And as a result, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he counsels the brothers and sisters there to encourage one another, to build up the brothers and sisters, to help them in their moral difficulties, in their doctrinal understandings. And what a lesson we learn from that, because we meet together to encourage one another. And so much the more as we await the Lord's appearing. In chapter 13, that famous chapter of love, Paul says, if I have all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, if I sell all that I possess and give it to the poor, but have not love, I have nothing. There's no clearer way for him to emphasize the importance that our motivation in working with our brothers and sisters, must be based first and foremost on love. We need to exhibit the love of Christ for the least of these, my brethren. 
Turn with me to chapter 16, where we conclude. The apostle has come to this city. He spent a year and a half there. He went in fear and trembling, so much so that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in a dream to comfort him. We talked about how we can draw strength knowing that Jesus is alive and helps us in our times of need. That Jesus is with us, that when we are afraid of getting involved, that He will be standing at our side. That He will be comforting us and counseling us and walking with us. That He'll send angels to assist us. Paul was in that city for a year and a half and he saw with disappointment the struggles they were facing, but he demonstrated love and patience as he exhorted them to be of one mind and one judgment. And he concludes the letter with the same words that Moses spoke to Joshua. He said, be strong and courageous. And Paul takes those same things and applies them to the brothers and sisters there. He says in verse 13, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. We spoke about how Paul demonstrated such patience with these brothers and sisters, that that patience went not only from the time he was there in that year and a half, but probably for six or seven years. We know that he wrote 2 Corinthians as well. And what better way to conclude our time together this week on Corinthians by looking at his very last words to the Ecclesia. He writes to them years after having first introduced them to the Gospel. He demonstrates patience as he encourages them to be of one mind and one thought. And he concludes in 2 Corinthians 13 with these words. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen.